Uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to the passage that was read, 1 Peter chapter 4. If you are visiting with us, let me just give a word of preface about our view of Scripture. Each Sunday, it is our goal to open this book to hear the Lord speak from what we believe is His infallible, inerrant Word. The Bible alone is the inspired Word of God. Every word is pure and every word is true. And that can be said of no other holy book. In it contained 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. No one is to take anything away from what God has said or add anything to what God has said. He, and, and, and he promises to visit plagues on those who detract from his word. And so whenever we open God's book, our goal as a Bible congregation, there are many Bible congregations around, is to welcome what is written, to interpret it accurately, that is our job, to read it prayerfully, study it carefully, meditate on it diligently, submit to its authority, rejoice in its commands, and to obey and obey all that it says. That is our goal as we open the book, and you should know that as we come to the text. First Peter chapter 4, we are in the middle of a series and a short letter at the end of our, Old, our New Testament, uh, 1 and 2 Peter. So he wrote these two letters, and this is the first one, 1 Peter, apostle of Jesus. It is a letter that is saturated with the theme of hope, and it is a theme that dominates while talking about suffering and trials. Peter's writing to people who are being hunted down and killed for their faith in what is today modern-day Turkey. And so in that sense, it's a very hostile context. Last Sunday, we looked at the end of chapter 3, which we entitled The Core of the Gospel. And it was a section in which Peter drilled down on the essence of the gospel, the good news, which is the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This weekend, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, what Peter's going to be doing now that he has clarified the core of the gospel is he's going to talk about what does someone look like who has been captured by the gospel. Not just someone who says, I'm a Christian, but someone who truly has embraced the gospel. What do they look like? Because the Bible is very clear, there is such thing as legitimate conversion and counterfeit conversion. And so the point of the, today's text is a true Christian is not just someone who says the right things, but a true Christian is someone who has been changed and transformed by the gospel. And we're going to look at two things. In verses 1 to 11, Peter, and I hope you got an outline as we passed them out, Peter is going to talk about two things, two critical attitudes that should describe, define anyone who has truly been born again. One, a militant attitude about sin. I chose the word militant on purpose because that's described very clearly. And then secondly, a humble attitude towards others. And these are both themes that come up over and over again in the New Testament. So first of all, militant attitude towards sin, kids. Hope you're looking onto a Bible. Young people, I hope you're looking onto a Bible because this is a very important section about our attitude if you do know Jesus towards sin. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you're not sure where you're at spiritually, A, we're glad you're here. And B, this will give you a chance a little bit to see what would be expected if you did become a Christian, because Jesus was very clear to count the cost before you choose to follow him. 
So I'm going to read verses 1 to 6 again as Peter describes what is this attitude we're supposed to have towards sin if we know Christ. Here it is. Young or old, if you know Jesus, here's your attitude. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Whoever suffers in his body is done with sin. I'm talking about mostly here attitude. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Now he's going to describe the life of an unbeliever, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And the odds are high with a group here this size. Some of us have participated in these kinds of things just recently. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you because you don't. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason, the gospel, which we learned is a Greek word that means good news. This is the reason the good news was preached even to those who are now dead, so they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. So the picture, as you look at those six verses, look at those six verses, the picture here is of a soldier. That's why I picked the word militant, not only how it's pictured, but then the attitude described. Pictures of a soldier and his equipment who arms himself for battle. One of the statements that's often used in the Christian world, I think it's very good. We are called, if you're no Christ, to a battlefield, not to a playground. And there's going to be casualties. And there's going to be, think of the imagery of what, is, what it costs on a battlefield. And one of the hallmarks of a counterfeit Christian, and churches are full of counterfeit Christians, even Bible teaching churches have counterfeit Christians in them, people who've been there for years, even on the membership rolls, but they're not really saved. One of the hallmarks of a counterfeit Christian is a casual attitude towards holiness. Casual, not that they would admit it, but a casual attitude towards obedience. Back in the 1970s, a secular psychiatrist, Carl Menninger from Kansas, stunned the therapeutic world when he published a book called Whatever Happened to Sin? I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a fascinating book to flip through and read. Whatever happened to sin? And at one point in the book, first of all, he says, we need to get back to the concept. This is a secular psychiatrist saying, we need to get back to the concept of sin because mental health, he said, this is his argument, mental health is predicated on understanding good and evil. And when you participate in one or the other and correct, you know, doing course corrections. And then at one point in the book, he has the audacity to take on preachers. <laughs> and he says, preachers... In our land, this is in the 1970s, have soft-pedaled sin, and it's damaging the psyche of our country, and it's damaging people because they're not learning what is right and what is wrong. Friends, ladies and gentlemen, young people, the Bible is very clear that we are sinners. You may say, I don't like that designation. I'm not up here to serve what you like. Now, the people at the breakfast crew were. I'm not up here to serve. I, I hope you, I, if, if you know Christ, you like what you're hearing. But here's the truth. The Bible says 
we're born sinful. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by birth. And we're sinners by choice. And there's no chapter more concentrated that describes this than Romans chapter 3. Kids, are you familiar with Romans chapter 3? Romans chapter 3 is cinerama and panorama. It is the most intense, concentrated dose of teaching in one long section about the sinfulness of our heart. I'm not going to read it, but there are 12 searing indictments leveled at the human race. Everybody, every single person here, every single person that's ever lived. I'm going to just read off the list of the 12 indictments. Romans chapter 3, they are universally evil, verse 10, spiritually ignorant, verse 11, rebellious, verse 11. And then the list goes on. Here's the other nine indictments. Every human being, wayward, worthless, corrupt, evil mouths, deceitful, full of bitterness, violent, miserable, no fear of God. Now, here's the problem. This ain't flattering stuff, and we generally hate what Scripture shows us about ourselves. That's why the Bible speaks of the law as a mirror. One of the functions of the Old Testament law had a number of functions. We did a series on the Ten Commandments not too long ago. We talked about a number of different functions the law had. But one of the functions of the law is to be a mirror. Now, all of you got up this morning. I don't know what you looked like when you got up, but I have a feeling you did something to yourself after you got up. Maybe looking at a couple you didn't, but most of you, <laughs> most of you did something to yourself after you got up, right? Why? Because you looked in the mirror, and what's the first thing you do? You go, oi. And the older you get, the more you go, oi. So you do something to yourself. You get out all that stuff in front of you, and you start trying to go to work and make something of it. The Bible, this, it says the laws of mirror, it, 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 it's held up to us, and we go, oh, and we, and we turn it away. Uh, Dr. H.A. Ironside, some of you remember the name, taught it. He was pastor at Moody Church in the 30s and 40s. He tells of a, a, a situation in which the wife of a tribal chief uh, uh, visited a mission station. And she had never seen a mirror. She'd never seen anything like that before. And she was curious about a mirror that was hung up in the house of the, chief, uh, of the, of the missionary. And so she asked what it was, and she was told. And then she looked into it, and as she looked... Her question was, who is that horrible person? And they answered back, that's you. I mean, they were trying to explain to her reflection. She then asked to buy the mirror. And so they did some bartering and traded. And she took the mirror, went outdoors, and she smashed it. And she said, I never want to see that horrible person ever again. That's us. That's what this, that's one of the, fun, I mean, this book has all kinds of functions. In one sense, it's full of promises and full of wonderful stories and full of theological truth and full of true stories. But on the other hand, it is also a mirror about what we really are. I want to go to one other passage this morning, the only one we'll turn to, and that is 1 Corinthians 10. And I invite you to take your sword or your lightsaber, as Gabe called it. That's a good description of having your little Bible on a little phone. 1 Corinthians 10, I want to turn to this for a reason. Here's why. Paul issues two very important warnings in 1 Corinthians 10. Warnings about what? About undermining and underestimating and compromising with sin. 
two warnings about giving in to sin. And Christians give in to sin as much as non-Christians sometimes. The only difference is Christians repent. But here are two warnings from Israel's history about the danger of compromising with sin. And this, this all fits under the rubric of our first point, a militant attitude towards sin. If you're going to have a militant attitude towards something, you really probably need to know the danger of compromising with it. So in that sense, this fits the whole battlefield imagery. If you're going to have a militant attitude towards the enemy, you better understand the danger of capitulating to that enemy and what's going to happen. And here Paul gives, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, two warnings about the danger of compromising and giving in to sin. Warning number one, these are worth writing down, thinking about if you have kids at home, grandkids, be worth going over with them. Here's the first warning about capitulating, compromising with sin. And it is this, simply having a godly heritage is no guarantee that we will end well, that we will personally end well. And that is in verses 1 to 5. So I'm only going to read 5. I'm going to tell you what verses 1 to 4 say. 1 to 4 argue, this is written by the Apostle Paul, by the way, to a small church in southern Greece, fairly new church, by the way, that it was already heavily infected with sin. And in 1 to 4, Paul describes the incredible privileges and heritage that ancient Israel had. He talks about it in great clarity. But then in verse 5, the warning comes. And here's the warning. That Israel's past heritage, their, their past spiritual privileges as the chosen people were no guarantee that they would just automatically finish well and pass go and collect $200. Doesn't mean that every individual Israelite was saved, but a lot of them were genuinely believers, but still a genuine believer can end poorly. And that, that's his point. So it is no guarantee just because you've been born again, or just because you had a great camp experience, or maybe because you've walked with the Lord faithfully for 20 years, that you're automatically going to end well. And he says that in verse 5, the first part of it. A godly heritage is no guarantee against eventual spiritual apostasy or rebellion or discipline, discipline or disobedience. In 5a, after describing all these incredible privileges, he says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. And so the point is past spiritual accomplishments, even past obedience, and even if you're genuinely saved, is no guarantee that you will necessarily finish well and keep your reputation intact. Warning number two, verses 5 to 11, and that is this, God's discipline for my sin, our sin, can be severe at times, even if I'm a genuine believer. And that is in verses 5 to 11, I am going to read verses 5 to 11. So warning number two, God's discipline for disobedience can be severe. Uh, think of David. King David, watching what happened when Uzzah touched the ark, if you remember that, touched the ark of the covenant, he touched it because he thought it was going to fall off a carrier, and he touched it, and God struck him dead. And even King David got upset, said, good heavens, what's up? And God, in essence, said, I said, don't touch the ark, and if you do, you'll die. And so it's a reminder. Paul's going to give us a reminder right here. Here's the warning. God's discipline for disobedience can be severe at times, even in the life of a believer. Verses 5 to 11. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with him. 
Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. There's part of the judgment. Now these things occurred as examples. I want you to focus on the word examples. It's going to come up again. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The ESV, the English Standard Version, says they got up and rose up to play. NIV says indulge in revelry. Both of them are a bit euphemistic. It basically, not basically, it's a reference to sexual debauchery and orgies. So they, 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 they got up to do sexual immorality. We should not be, we should not, verse 8, commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, notice this, verse 8, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Do you see the theme here? God's discipline, even on His beloved, these are His chosen people, can be severe. Verse 11, these things happened to them as what? What's the word? Examples. We saw it in verse 6. We see it in verse 11. And now they're written down as what for us? Warnings. So I'm not up here making stuff up. I'm not misapplying passages trying to scare us or scare myself. This was written as a warning to us on whom the culmination of the ages have come. In fact, look at verse 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That applies to me. It applies to any of us here. Bible's full of, especially the Old Testament, which Paul is referring to here, which was the only testament at the time he was writing, is filled with examples of people who obeyed and were blessed, people who disobeyed. And we're disciplined. I'm going to give you two of the most famous examples. Even if you don't go to church regularly, even if you don't know your Bible much, you probably know the names King David and the name Moses. Let me give you two examples just from their life, how God's disciplined. Even on someone as beloved and exalted and revered as Moses or David, God's discipline can be severe. Case one, Moses. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses climbed up on Mount Nebo. We were in Israel a couple weeks ago, standing at the Dead Sea. You can see Mount Nebo right across the Dead Sea. It's in what is modern-day Jordan, and it's right up there perched. You can look into the Promised Land from Mount Nebo. Moses had wandered for some years with the Hebrews, leading them. They are up. He's up on Mount Nebo, and then God said, BTW, Moses, you're not entering the Promised Land. I know that's what you've been wanting to do and where you're leading for the last 40 years. But after all your faithful leading, the reason is given why he can't enter the promised land in verse 51, Deuteronomy 32. So Deuteronomy 32, 51, quote, because you failed to demonstrate my holiness at the waters of Kadesh. Now, if you don't know your Bible well, you're thinking, what was that? Well, in Numbers 20, Kadesh, God had told Moses to speak to a rock to get water out of it. Moses became frustrated with the people, and instead he smacked the rock, and he hit it. And in response, after Moses hit the rock in anger, God said, later on, as he stood up Mount Nebo, looking into the promised land, because you dishonored me in front of my people, 
Even though years of faithfulness in this one area, you're not going to enter that very land you craved and were longing to enter. You might say, that seems harsh. Like I said, the warning here, I'm just telling you what it says here. These were given as warnings. Let me give you one more. King David, who is a greater hero. He's mentioned more in the Bible than anyone else. King David. King David is called a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13. At the peak of his career, he did the unthinkable. What's that? He seduced another man's wife, arranged to have him murdered, and he got her pregnant. And we know that he had heartfelt contrition because we know in Psalm 51, you know your Bibles, a guy named Nathan came to him, told him this story, and then he said the very famous line as he got to the punchline in the story, got David angry at the protagonist in the story, which was the goal. David gets upset, and Nathan the prophet looks at David, says one of those famous lines in the Bible, which is, you are the man. You're that man. We read in 1214, 2 Samuel 1214, Yahweh struck his child. So the woman's name was Bathsheba. Bath is daughter of, daughter of Sheba. She gets pregnant. Husband's murdered. David commits adultery. David genuinely repents. And it still says, the Hebrew text is very clear. Yahweh struck his child. God killed the baby. And then David was betrayed. He loses his kingdom and he dies a bitter man. Yes, Christians can die bitter people. So two lessons clear and emerge from Moses and David. Let me give you the two lessons that I see. One, I should never think I have a free pass to sin because God's discipline can be painful. For example, I should never think, that's not really a big deal if I mess around with a little bit of pornography or a little bit of premarital sex. It's not going to be that big a deal. You don't know that. And number one, it's Forbidden. Number two, you can deal with guilty conscience. But number three, unpredictable, quote, quote, is how God deals with sin sometimes in our, from our perspective. And we have no idea what he might choose to do. I should never tell myself, it's not a big deal if I verbally abuse my spouse or if I cheat in my marriage. You have no idea what discipline might be coming down the pike. I should never assume, well, you know what? God's loving. I mean, we've all lied to ourselves this way. Not that God isn't loving, but we've all said things like this. You know what? God is so loving that he'll go easy on my stealing. He'll go easy on my cheating. He'll go easy on my bitterness. He'll go easy on my deception. He'll go easy on fill in the blank. Because he's loving, which he is. And then we lie to ourselves saying, but so he'll automatically go easy because I'm, I'm one of his favorite. Second lesson coming out of Moses and David in this whole warning thing is that the, hear this, young people, this. The consequences of forgiven sin can be life-altering. The consequences of forgiven sin. I didn't say unforgiven. I said forgiven sin can be life-altering. When we step outside of God's spiritual and moral boundaries, we will pay a price sooner or later. There's no getting away from it. You might escape it for a while, but you will pay the price eventually. And if not in this life, in the next life, but usually somewhere in this life, and sometimes it can involve discipline that is not reversible. And it's hard, but an important lesson to hear. And so no wonder Peter writes back to Peter, 1 Peter, in verse 7, 
the end of our first section there. No wonder he writes impassionedly. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. So that is number one. We are to have a militant attitude towards sin and not underestimate giving into it and the danger and look to the examples of people in the Old Testament. All right, second and final thing this morning. Second attitude, Peter says, should be two of every true believer is a humble attitude towards others. Verses 8 to 11, Peter calls true Christians here to three specific one another's. Love one another, offer hospitality to one another, serve one another. All three of these speak of having a humble attitude and of treating others with the love of Christ. So I'm going to read verses 8 to 10, where he defines a humble attitude that every true born-again Christian, if you know Christ, if you've repented, if you've been born again, this should define you. This should define me. And when it doesn't, we need to repent and get back in fellowship because we all sin. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. That's how careful we need to be with our tongue and in our emails and our voicemails and in our texting and lettering and communications with people. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. It's not an accident, by the way, up in verse 8, that he starts with love. Francis Schaeffer, some of you remember the great thinker Francis Schaeffer had a little book called The Mark of the Christian. What is it? Mark of the Christian is love. Jesus himself, I mean, all, all Schaefer did was go back to Jesus in John 13, 35. And Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you're one of my disciples. If you go to church every week. Is that what it says, kids? No. If you are a believer, you should go to church every week. But that's not what Jesus said. By this will everyone know you're one of my disciples if you love one another. And he was very clear about that. What's interesting is that Jesus' command to love is rooted in something we call compassion. I'm not going to break down the etymology of the word, but compassion, I want you, here's the point, is a uniquely Christian concept. Very unique Christian concept. I remember, uh, and our son Ben here was with us when we were in India several years ago, a number of years ago, and we uh, were talking with a Hindu. And we were in Delhi, and we were looking at people laying all over. It was very early morning. And we were, all the street people and people sleeping in ditches and all this. And I asked this guy, I said, he was our tour guide that day, but he was just for our family. We had him as a private tour guide. And I said, what, what is your perspective? What is the Indian government's perspective towards, you know, thousands of people just laying out here? And his answer was haunting, but it was very Hindu. He was being consistent. He said, they deserve it. They're getting exactly what they deserve. Why would we help them? In fact, if we help them, we're hurting them. I said, come again? Good buddy? No, I said, what? I knew, I think I knew where he was going because I understand reincarnation and transmigration. 
But his point was, look it, from a Hindu perspective, you got to step into their worldview. Everyone's on a cycle. Everyone's on a trajectory of, we believe in reincarnation in the West. That means you can only come back as another person. But in classic Orthodox Hinduism, you can come back as anything. Go back as a cow, a worm, a slug, anything. He said, they're on a trajectory. They're paying for sins in their past life. If I get in the way and actually help them at this very moment, I'm going to short circuit their redemption process. And so why would I help them? They need to suffer and lay in the ditch and rot because they're paying for sins and they're working out their salvation. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, ideas have consequences. Ideas, worldviews have consequences. And as sincere as this guy was, and as charming and love, I mean, he was a very good tutor guy, very nice guy. But he had bought into a system of deception and lies that human beings are not valuable. And helping a human being somehow in the twisted logic of Hinduism actually is destructive. Where the Bible says, the exact opposite. So compassion is a very unique thing to the Christian worldview. And it's based on the Bible's teaching that we have the Imago Dei, that every human being is born in the image of God and is to be loved accordingly. You see, most cultures in the history of the world have operated on what? The lesser should serve the privilege, right? That's almost every civilization. You go back and look at the Egyptians. You look at the Assyrians. You look at the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. The privileged should be served by the lesser. Only Jesus came, turned his whole thing on its head and said, no, no, no. The privileged should serve the least. That's why compassion is rooted in a Christian worldview. All right, time to summons. Time to land a plane. What's our summons this morning? If you go to our church, you know, no summons, no sermon. So what is this text calling us to do? Every text calling us to do something. Let me summarize it in two questions and we'll be done. Number one, have, I, I don't know all of you, have you personally owned your sin and repented and trusted Christ for salvation? Let me frame it this way. We're living in a day when we're being told every day, all over the place, you choose your own identity, right? We're told that all the time. You choose your identity. Well, let me tell you something. The Bible says you're born with three identity markers that are fixed and permanent from the moment you're conceived. They are your gender. You cannot change your gender. It's fixed from the moment of conception. It will never be altered. Secondly, Imago Dei. You're born in the image of God. No other creature on planet earth is. And third identity marker is you're a rebel at heart. So am I. You're a lawbreaker at heart. So am I. Those are our identity markers, and hence Jesus' emphasis on you must be born again. If you want to be reconciled to God, if you want to make sure you're on the new heaven and new earth, you have to be born again. You have to go through spiritual rebirth. In Mark 1, it says, Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the gospel. He said it way before Billy Graham, way before Billy Sunday, way before D.L. Moody, way before Martin Luther, way before St. Augustine. Jesus said, you must be born again. And the Bible says, that means I have to repent of my sin, but this will throw you. I also have to repent of my righteousness. You say, what do you mean? Well, think about it. When we're trying to live a good life, 
Some of us here are trying to live a good life so God will be pleased and take us to heaven. You know what I'm really doing at that point? I'm trying to be my own savior. I'm trying to take control of God and, I'm, and, my, and, and at that point I'm actually fighting God because I'm trying to be my own savior. And the Bible says my default mode, your default mode is religious activity and law and striving to be a good person. And what I steadfastly need to admit and confess if I'm going to be saved is how deceitful, how selfish, and how cruel I can really be. And so hence the need to repent and believe. That's the first question this morning. Have you done that? I know a lot of us here have, but I know in a crowd this size, there are numbers of us here who have never done that. And may you hear today, there is forgiveness available in Christ. He did send his beloved son into the world, his only begotten son, because he so loved the world so that you wouldn't have to perish, but have eternal life if you believe in him. Second and last question this morning. If you do claim to be a true Christian, and if you claim to know Christ, and you say, yeah, look, it, I'm born again, then the question to you and I is, are you pursuing holiness? Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite authors, went to be with the Lord a few years ago, wrote a classic. I've shared from this classic a number of times. I read this as a teenager. I still dip into it regularly. The Pursuit of Holiness, it's a classic. But he has a great quote, and it stings a bit, but it says this. The only safe evidence, the only safe evidence that we are in Christ is a holy life. It is not those who profess to know Jesus who will enter heaven, but those whose lives are holy. Jesus said, quote, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And so the Bible reveals a big difference between the biblical gospel and what I would call the American gospel. What's the American gospel? It's all over the place. American gospel says this, have your best life now. And as I've said before inside, if this is your best life now, you're going to hell. If this is the best it gets, that, see, that means on the other side of the curtain, it's going to get worse. So that's a completely ungodly, unbiblical concept. The Bible says, I mean, the American gospel says, God wants you to be fulfilled. God wants you to be happy. And he issues no demands on your life. The American gospel is no sin, no need for a savior. Sit back, relax, no summons to holiness. The biblical gospel says, no, die to self, serve Christ and discover the joy of being forgiven. You can be forgiven of all that stuff that weighs on you. And so I close with this promise from Scripture, Psalm 8411. Hear this, church, as a promise from God if you know Him and love Him. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 8411, no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Amen? So many of us here could testify to that. Father, thank you for Peter. And thank you, you somebody like Peter to write this letter who stuck his foot in his mouth all the time, who was such a doofus on the one side of the cross. And yet you picked a normal guy like so many of us, just normal people. And yet on the other side of the cross in the resurrection, he became a bold, death-defying prophet. 
because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray today for those who know Christ, that they would press on into holiness. And if need be, do some reflection and repentance. And I pray for those here today who don't know Jesus, and I know there are some here. May today be the day they're born again and cry out, Father God, forgive me. I am a sinner and I need Jesus as my Savior. We pray these things in His powerful name. Amen.